0: Hello everyone, welcome back to Waking Cosmos, a philosophical podcast exploring the nature of consciousness and its place in reality. It feels like a little while since I've made a podcast, last month I was working on a video episode and so a lot of my attention was on that for a while, and uh, yeah, you can check that out on the YouTube channel if you're interested, it was a video exploring consciousness in science fiction. Uh, But yeah, things have been busy with me. I uh, recently moved back to the UK, and so I've been gradually reintegrating back into life here. Uh, I'm also looking for a new place to live, uh, hopefully somewhere a bit closer to the forest. That would be nice. So it's quite a busy time for me at the moment, but it's great to finally sit down and make another podcast. And I've definitely missed it. It's uh, still my dream to make Waking Cosmos a full-time project. I'm not there yet, so... Uh, I'm doing a few other things to make ends meet, but hopefully the day will come and these episodes can become more regular and hopefully continue to improve in quality. Uh, If this is the first episode that you've listened to, welcome. This is a uh, podcast and sometimes video series in which we explore the philosophical mysteries of consciousness and existence and uh, life's place more broadly in the universe. I talk to a variety of philosophers and experts who offer unique and, I think, interesting perspectives which you might not have heard before. And so far it's been an amazing experience for me. Hopefully that comes across. I do research all of these conversations quite thoroughly before they happen. I like to go quite deeply into the ideas of my guests before we have a conversation. So... When I actually come to do the podcast, it's an amazing experience because you know I've read a lot and I've consumed a lot of information, but then I get to have this conversation with the person who actually had the ideas. And honestly, I'm finding it amazing that I'm just sort of somehow able to do this and get away with it. Anyway, I'm really enjoying these conversations and I hope you are too. Uh, today, my friends, is no different. I'm joined by the brilliant philosopher David Pearce, who, in addition to thinking very deeply about the mystery of consciousness, uh, he is the co-founder with Nick Bostrom, whom some of you, I'm sure, will have heard of, of the World Transhumanist Association, also known as Humanity Plus. David is most famous for arguing that we have an ethical obligation, to the extent to which it is in our power, to abolish suffering in all sentient life. And he believes that technologies which already exist Uh, suggests that this is possible uh, to end suffering throughout the entire natural world and eventually the entire reachable universe. And so if that sounds quite unbelievable to you, this is going to be an interesting episode because David is very convincing and quite a brilliant thinker. In addition to that topic, we also talk about panpsychism, which David is quite sympathetic to. He's not a materialist. And for those of you that might not know, panpsychism uh, very generally is the idea that consciousness or awareness could be fundamental in some way to reality. Quite a regular topic on the podcast these days. Uh, We also talk about the possibility of a discoverable universal ethics, which is another close interest for me, and we explore the idea that any sufficiently advanced society of minds uh, might eventually converge on a kind of universal ethics. Uh, We also get into David's views about aging and death and the potential technological facilitation of immortality. As always, uh, if you enjoy this episode and like what I'm trying to do here with Waking Cosmos, please consider supporting me on Patreon through the link in the description. It is through Patreon that I'm trying to turn this into a full-time project. So if you want to make an impact on Waking Cosmos and my life, Patreon is really the place to go. And of course, don't forget to hit like and share the episode with anyone that you think might be interested. All right, without further delay, I give you David Pearce. Hi David, thanks for joining me. Hello Adrian, greetings from Brighton. Greetings. So I think you're best known for your views about ending suffering and how through rewriting our genetic source code and by using technologies of various kinds, we're eventually gonna set about ending suffering of all kinds forever, or uh, ending experiences which are, as you term them, below hedonic zero. And uh, not just in ourselves, in humans, uh, but in the long term, the entire natural world. Uh, You've called this goal of ending suffering the abolitionist project. Could you summarize the abolitionist project and then we'll get further into it?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's a very good summary. Of course, there's nothing especially new about the idea of ending suffering. It's implicit in Buddhism. Uh, What's changed has been biotechnology cracking the genome. And yeah, back in 1995, I wrote an online manifesto called The Hedonistic Imperative, Why this title? Uh, It sounds rather debauched, but yes, not merely do I think it's likely and ethically desirable that we're going to reprogram the biosphere to get rid of suffering and all sentient beings. Uh, I also think it's likely that we will replace the biology of suffering and malaise with gradients of intelligent bliss, uh, quite likely orders of magnitude richer than anything accessible today. However, from a purely ethical perspective, that's very much uh, the icing on the cake. Uh, I'm personally uh, a negative utilitarian. I think our overriding obligation is to minimise and prevent suffering. But I think the point to make here is that one needn't be a negative utilitarian or utilitarian of any kind to recognize that, yes, we we should get rid of any form of of suffering.
0: Mm. So, in talking about ending suffering, you're talking about transhumanism, going beyond human nature as it currently exists. You certainly identify as a transhumanist, and yet, how you see the future of humanity, I think is quite different to say, Ray Kurzweil and other singularity types. And from what I can tell the difference, uh, the point at which you diverge with um, many of the other transhumanists that I know of is in your views about consciousness and specifically that artificial intelligences or, or intelligences which are based on computation will never become conscious. And uh, this is a fact which is going to significantly set things back against, say, Ray Kurzweil's timeline for the singularity. So why do you believe that? What is going on in a brain which couldn't also be going on inside a computer?
1: Uh, First of all, I think one needs to ask, what is consciousness for in biological organisms? What's its adaptive function, or is it just uh, a spandrel and i think that the functional role of consciousness is phenomenal binding non-psychotic binding it is binding that allows what would otherwise be purely distributed neuronal feature processes to assemble perceptual objects populating a unitary world simulation And I don't think that a classically parallel connectionist system, a a classical serial digital computer is capable of phenomenal binding, that even if, and this is a conjecture I take very seriously, uh, consciousness is, is fundamental to the world, the most that any classical digital computer will ever be is a micro experiential zombie. Big question, of course, is why uh, our central nervous systems are any different. And here we come onto the quantum mind stuff. Perhaps the best way to understand, I think, why binding is so computationally functionally uh, vital why it's the, it essentially uh, the greatest computational achievement of organic minds over the past 500 million years is to look at syndromes where binding even partially breaks down. I mean, someone with, let's say, simultaneous nausea, who can only see one object at once or cerebral achingotopsia or motion blindness who can't see motion or someone with uh, florid schizophrenia who hasn't got anything resembling a unitary self. This is profoundly incapacitating, and uh, though there are uh, workarounds, at least for local binding, essentially, yes, classical digital computers are at most micro experiential zombies. And so scenarios, Kurzweil and scenarios involving a complete, let's say, mind uploading, total fusion with humans and our machines, I don't think are viable.
0: So in your view, it's quantum binding, which is bringing all of the cognitive processes in the brain together. And so the unity of conscious experience is a quantum unity so are you saying that quantum binding is consciousness what is the nature of consciousness in your view
1: well this is the so-called intrinsic nature argument for non-materialist physicalism essentially no progress has been made solving the hard problem of consciousness since democritus and if you are a non-materialist physicalist you don't say that consciousness is fundamentally attached to, to basic matter and energy. Instead, the claim of uh, non-materialist physicalism associated with people like Galen Strawson or most recently, Philip Goff, is this idea that consciousness discloses the intrinsic nature of the physical, the fire in the equations. Physics uh, tells us uh, and gives an exhaustive account of the structural relational properties of Matter and energy, but the actual nature of the fire uh, in the equations is something on which physics is is silent. And indeed, it's it's actually as you, as you know, it's a, a doctrinaire materialist Stephen Hawking who is associated with this poetic metaphor of of the fire in the equations. What I can't call the noumenal essence of the world. And intuitively, uh, it might seem unknowable, but what the non-materialist physicalist says is that actually we do have some privileged insight into the intrinsic nature of reality, the fire into the equations, and that is uh, in the form of our own minds and the world simulations we run. And what we discover is that the intrinsic nature of a quantum field is not as one might naively imagine, uh, intuitively quantum field theory describes fields of insentience, but rather instead quantum field theory describes fields of of sentience. Essentially, any satisfactory theory of consciousness, I would say, A, it has to make novel, precise, experimentally falsifiable predictions that both... Proponents and critics alike will agree. Will, can agree will uh, be relevant to uh, the issue. The issue, more and substantively, any satisfactory theory of consciousness must explain the existence of consciousness in the first place. How it is possible for consciousness to have causal efficacy, and not merely causal efficacy, but causal functional efficacy. I.e., you can ask me questions about consciousness, and I can reply. And any satisfactory theory of consciousness must also solve the phenomenal binding problem. Uh, Why aren't you just 86 billion odd discrete membrane bound classical neurons as you are in a dreamless sleep? And the intrinsic nature argument for non-materialist physicalism has, at least in the quantum theoretic version, it has answers to those four substantive questions, and, and this to my mind is what makes it really interesting, the quantum theoretic f- version, is that it's actually experimentally testable. It's not just some idle philosophical opinion that if it is really the case that what crude, temporarily coarse-grained neuro-scanning uh, says are distributed neuronal feature processes firing when you see a perceptual object is really coherent superposition, then the non-classical interference signature will tell us. I personally think, or at least tentatively think uh, that when we probe the CNS at sufficiently temporarily fine-grained scales, we will find a perfect structural match. Mm. What's odd at present is that we find a partial structural match. Uh, Edge detectors firing, motion detectors, colour detectors, but no unitary uh, per- per- perceptual objects and mm. this more than anything else is what induces uh, David Chalmers to endorse dualism and if there is not a perfect structural match between our minds and ultimately the formalism of physics uh, then yeah as far as I can tell dualism
0: uh, is true. Hmm. So, just to summarize, this is a form of quantum panpsychism. And uh, so, the intrinsic nature argument is that science is telling us, of course, all of this amazing stuff about the world, but it only actually tells us about this causal outer nature of things. And it doesn't actually tell us what the world is in itself, uh, the intrinsic nature of things, what breathes fire into the equations. And of course, consciousness is the only intrinsic nature that we actually know of, this sort of mysterious interior quality. And so perhaps uh, the intrinsic nature argument uh, suggests that this mysterious interior nature of our minds is actually a rarefied expression of the interior nature of the world. And so that's the intrinsic nature argument. But you're saying that the way consciousness is sort of vectored into more complicated organisms like us is through quantum entanglement, essentially. I think for me, for panpsychism to be a plausible account, there does need to be an explanation of why we ought to expect something like consciousness or a very basic awareness of some kind to be existing at the foundations of things. And maybe a possible answer is along the lines of, well, existence itself entails an essentially self-realising nature, and perhaps that entails that existence and consciousness are actually inseparable from each other in some way. But I think most of us will be used to thinking about consciousness as more of a highly rarefied phenomenon, something that's emerging out of a great number of different processes And so to say that it's a fundamental property, I think, can be confusing for some people. And so to clarify, we're talking about a very basic property of interiority in the world. And in your view, it's this quantum binding that biological organisms are using that scales up this fundamental property. Is that the right way to say it?
1: Yes. so standardly, we assume that there are two separate mysteries. Why does anything exist at all? And why some 500 or so million years ago, uh, or just before in the Cambrian explosion, consciousness erupted from nowhere. But the non-materialist physicalist says there is only uh, one fundamental mystery in that sense, uh, which is why there is something rather than nothing. I think we can uh, explore this mystery if you like, though it's arguably not uh, central to the abolitionist project, though in one sense they're intimately uh, uh, linked, but essentially it collapses two mysteries into one. Just a a word uh, on consciousness when some people use the term consciousness they're really talking about reflective self awareness or their serial stream of of thought so by consciousness yeah uh, one needs to be clear what one means basic what it's likeness The main reason people recoil from non-materialist physicalism or or panpsychism is this intuition one has, of course, that essentially it's not like anything to be an electron or electron field. It's simply too small. Um, But in one sense, uh, the particular quantum theoretic version of the intrinsic nature uh, argument that I explore is even more implausible, but because it focuses not merely on uh, uh, spatial resolution, but also temporal resolution. Uh, It doesn't invoke any new principle of physics, just simply the unitary Schrodinger dynamics. It doesn't involve any additional philosophical assumption. It simply highlights that if, and it's obviously a huge if, consciousness discloses the intrinsic nature of the physical, then we must explore the nature of consciousness on the nature of picosecond, femtosecond, and attosecond temporal resolutions. And if you probe, if you were to probe your CNS at this kind of extraordinarily temporarily fine-grained level, you wouldn't find 86 billion discrete decohered classical neurons but instead individual superpositions. I think it's only the ubiquity of the superposition principle that allows you to have the experience of a robustly law-like classical world that the the vehicle uh, of our simulation is quantum coherent, but the subjective content is classical.
0: Right. And so... We got into this because you made the argument that the predictions of a lot of the transhumanists relating to mind uploading and conscious artificial intelligences and so on are not as likely to be coming anytime soon as we might think, or at least not until our technologies actually find a way of hooking into this uh, fundamental intrinsic nature. And that will uh, involve manipulating a level of nature that we don't currently have a clear access to. But in principle, in your view, if we could learn to do that, we could fabricate a conscious mind. It's not impossible that we could do this at some point. And yet that's a very different proposition to computation and uh, the continued advancement of Moore's law. So to move into your views about the future of humanity and our continued evolution you've argued that significant changes uh, we are going to go through will come about through our learning to rewrite our genetic source code. And so our ancestors, uh, they may occupy a world of fantastic technologies and artificial intelligence, but for the foreseeable future, uh, we will continue to be biological. I think one thing that you point out, which I feel is quite important to recognize, is that really... Evolution uh, did not have happiness and certainly did not have super happiness in mind for us. And so our entire mental architecture is actually primarily shaped by that which was successful for reproduction. And so it's true in a way that until we do take matters into our own hands, we'll always have these vestiges of mental architecture, which maybe served us very well when we were living on the plains of Africa or in the jungle, but they're not necessarily at all adaptive for life today in the modern world. So the question is, you know, do you think it's possible that we'll one day decide that we don't need jealousy, for example, or these other retributive instincts? Will we one day just sort of leave these kinds of emotions behind forever?
1: Yes, I mean, jealousy is an extremely good example in that not merely would it be good to get rid of the, the nasty, raw feels of jealousy, that there is no real cause to conserve its uh, its functional role. Uh, contrast something like uh, pain uh, experienced in the presence of noxious stimuli, whereas even though it would be very good to get rid of the nasty, raw feels of pain, we're going to need to retain the function of nociception. In the case of something like jealousy, uh, yeah, one can see why it's extraordinarily fitness enhancing that the kind of would-be ancestor a few hundred thousand years ago who decided that jealousy was uh, stupid and that he'll let uh, another man sleep with his wife, well, yeah, his genes weren't the ones who that, that were par, uh, uh, passed on. Uh, jealousy can already be transiently eliminated today under the influence of uh, drugs like MDMA, ecstasy. Uh, unfortunately, uh, MDMA is potentially neurotoxic. But uh, yeah, in future, we will be able to decide whether we want to preserve uh, jealousy at all. Uh, unfortunately, jealousy is relatively uh, complex genetically, biologically. Something like pain sensitivity, on the other hand, is relatively amenable to uh, to interventions even now. And the standard example I give is the SCN9A gene, this kind of volume knob for pain. Uh, nonsense mutations knock out the ability to to experience any form of nasty, raw feels, pain, uh, in that sense, uh, at all. But unfortunately, people with nonsense mutations of SCN9A, unfortunately, they uh, lack the capacity for nociception, or rather they have to learn that certain stimuli are dangerous. They need to lead cotton wool uh, existences. The solution, at least in the short to medium run, is clearly not to have nonsense mutations of SCN9A, but instead to choose some of the uh, benign variants of SCN9A that are associated with extremely high pain thresholds. Uh, You look at today's uh, genetic outliers who describe pain as uh, just a useful signaling mechanism, and they exist at one extreme end of the, uh, uh, the spectrum and that by choosing benign versions of SCN9A for our future children via uh, pre-implantation genetic screening by giving benign versions to domestic non-human animals and and using synthetic gene drives to spread them across uh, the biosphere. Essentially, one can dramatically reduce uh, the burden of physical pain in the, uh, the the living world. And the same is true, though it's much more complicated with something like don't set points. Um, Even tweaking a handful of genes, serotonin transporter, the comp gene, catecholomethyl transferase. Essentially, I am glossing over a host of technical sociological challenges. But nonetheless, if one treats it as a technical and ethical problem, that there are uh, solutions that the level of suffering in the biosphere uh, is shortly going to be an
0: adjustable parameter and a long-term goal should be zero. Hmm. I think a couple of points to raise, and I need to play a bit of devil's advocate, because I think you know some people are going to have the concern that suffering is something that we need or that it's intrinsically balancing out the good or it's how we learn, Uh, and so I do want us to respond to that. As you've mentioned, uh, scientists have already identified existing uh, genetic variances which make certain people more prone to positive emotions, and other genes which underpin depression and generally lower moods throughout life. So already it is in principle possible by activating certain genes that we could already be Selecting for a happier future generation with less depression and greater emotional resilience. And yet, most parents obviously aren't doing this at the moment. Most parents are, uh, as you call it, just rolling the genetic dice. And I think the reason why, in addition to simply not being aware of these options, is that at least on some level, it seems unnatural. It does evoke this specter of eugenics. And so, How do you respond to this concern that actually changing the structure of our minds is unnatural and even uh, dangerous?
1: Yes, it's quite an intuitively uh, powerful response, yet we already uh, intervene in countless uh, ways in the living world, in nature. We construct uh, these ghastly apparatus of factory farms and slaughterhouses and do terrible things to non-human animals. Now that's uh, unnatural. If you look around uh, your environment now, I mean, you know, you're not a a, a naked ape li- living on this uh, African savanna. You're surrounded by artifacts, the latest gadgets, mobile phone, and so on. We pick and choose what we like, we call natural, and what we don't like, we call unnatural. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's going to take time. Um, I think more people are comfortable with the idea of screening for well-known genetic diseases. Uh, If if, if your child is going to be at risk for, let's say, cystic fibrosis, uh, very few people actively urge that we should try and conserve all the hundreds of uh, variants of the cystic fibrosis gene, for example. But where many people would draw the line is uh, screening for something like uh, mood or possibly pain sensitivity. Uh, But I think we do need to have, yeah, essentially a a social political dialogue here. That, yeah, every kid born into the world today is unique genetic experiment. Whether one is really entitled to uh, to bring more ethically, to bring more suffering into the world is debatable. But if one is really set on having uh, children of one's own and not remaining childless or uh, adopting, then I think, yeah, one essentially has a, an obligation to load the genetic dice in one's children's favour. And this involves not merely screening for the standard so-called physical uh, genetic disorders, but also pre-selecting benign variants of genes involved in uh, pain sensitivity and having a high or a low uh, hedonic set point.
0: Yeah, I think that's well put. Uh, I do think that we still need to respond to the intuition that I think some people will be having, which is wait, isn't suffering an essential part of life? Uh, You know, suffering provides the contrast through which we're able to identify what is good and what is of value and also what is bad and worth avoiding. And, you know, we do seem to have a range of different experiences which we interpret as having a lot of value and yet we also associate them with a certain degree of negative valence. And so, you know, perhaps one example would be nostalgia. Uh, You know, there seems to be this grain of sadness in nostalgia. There's this sense in which the past is gone and we can never go back. And yet it can also be a very beautiful emotion. And so if we do raise our hedonic range in the way that you're describing, entirely uh, outside of the range of negative valence, is it possible that certain valued experiences would be lost in this, which are actually worth keeping? You
1: raise a number of important issues uh, there. The issue, let's start with the issue of contrast. I mean sadly as we know today there are some people who endure uh, chronic low mood, chronic depression, chronic uh, uh, pain. Uh, One wouldn't say that their inability to experience pleasure somehow means that they're not really suffering. but uh, conversely, there is nothing to stop us ratcheting up hedonic set points, hedonic range, so that instead we enjoy information sensitive gradients of well being. How steep or shallow? Uh, should be these gradients. I mean, one could imagine a f- future civilization. Uh, uh, if today's hedonic range is minus ten to hedonic zero to plus ten, uh, mm. a, a civilization whose hedonic range is plus ninety to a plus hundred, which intuitively is less hedonic contrast, but if it really is regarded as essential, essential to keep a very uh, deep gradients, then one could have a civilization with a hedonic range of, let's say, plus 70 to a plus 100. And the absolute hedonic floor plus 70 will still have a richer hedonic tone than even today's peak experiences. And nonetheless, uh, yeah, of course, most people would uh, be striving for life in the the plus 90s. Now, that Mm -hmm. is clearly for now, at any rate, uh, science uh, fictional. But what we can do for our children and grandchildren is aim to, as I said, ratchet up hedonic uh, set points, and uh, the stress on information-sensitive gradients of well-being is is important for two reasons, I think. First, by conserving hedonic gradients, you retain critical insight, social responsibility, capacity for uh, uh, for progress, that it is adaptive and functional to retain these information sensitive gradients. Um, but the second reason for laying such stress on information sensitive gradients of well-being or gradients of bliss is uh, that it highlights how one isn't trying to impose one's own core values and preferences on others. Whatever your basic values, your greatest joys, what you like or dislike. Hedonic recalibration uh, would, yes, it would give you an immeasurably richer quality of life, but it wouldn't ask you to give up your existing values unless, of course, one of your uh, existing values is conserving the status quo. Right.
0: Right. And, you know, I think another important point that you've made is that on some level, it doesn't actually matter how much we achieve materially in the world. A lot of us imagine that if we became millionaires or we could achieve all of our desired goals, then we would somehow become happy or when we're surrounded by all of these fantastic technologies that the future is promising and that we'll somehow finally achieve happiness and we'll be able to step off the hedonic treadmill as you describe it. And yet, because of the structure of our minds as they've evolved prior to modernity, we are always going to be bound to a certain ceiling of happiness, which may actually not be very high at all for some people. Uh, You know, we're restless beings in some sense. When we achieve our goals, our levels of happiness normalize quite quickly to, uh, like I said, a level which can be actually quite low and uh, certainly could be improved on. And so if we do ever wish to transcend the hedonic treadmill, as you put it, we will need to make changes to our minds on some level. Let's talk more about your view that eventually we'll, not only in ourselves, but we'll recognize the necessity of ending suffering in the entire natural world. How do you get to that view and what might that actually look like? Um
1: First, uh, it needs to be said uh, that the idea of radically intervening in nature to mitigate, prevent, ultimately abolish suffering until we shut down, outlaw uh, factory farms and slaughterhouses, this kind of initiative is, is, is fanciful. That Probably the greatest source of severe, readily avoidable suffering in the world today is factory farming, slaughterhouses, uh, and we have to tackle this first. Realistically, the only way I think we're going to get uh, global veganism this century, though, is going to be via in vitro meat technologies. They need to be developed, commercialised. Spread across the world, and we need to get factory farms and slaughterhouses shut. But what then? And here we come uh, onto which I will tackle now, which is uh, suffering in nature. Perhaps I should, just before going on to your question there, I mean, I think a number of animal activists would would, would say, well, this is just sort of crazy to think about wild animal suffering while we're still doing such terrible things to non-humans in factory farms and slaughterhouses. But at the moment, a lot of uh, well-meaning people, altruists and the like, uh, focus on such things as conservation initiatives, captive breeding programs, and yeah, we need to have a debate as to whether we want to conserve, whether we want to rewild, or we whether we want to have uh, essentially compassionate biology. Okay, sorry about that uh, run up. To tackle your question directly, yes, The Living World, possibly if you're the kind of person who enjoys wildlife documentaries, David Attenborough and so on, one thinks of The Living World as a wonderful, magical, delightful place, uh, but essentially it is full of quite obscene suffering of creatures dying of starvation of being eaten alive riddled with parasites disemboweled uh, asphyxiated nature red in tooth and claw and whereas until recent decades this was simply a fact of life uh, we Mm. are now in a position where we can actually choose the level of suffering in the rest of the living world the bedrock of any uh, compassionate stewardship of nature, I think, would have to be uh, cross-species fertility regulation by something like uh, immunocontraception. It's already mm. been try, you know, it's already done, let's say, something like for elephants in Kruger National Park, but uh, yeah, essentially it would need to be applied at a cross-species level because Otherwise, uh, interventions to help would simply lead to a population explosion and more suffering. But in terms of other kinds of uh, suffering in nature, yeah, we need to have a debate. Do we want a living world based on creatures praying, terrorizing, eating each other? Now, personally, I would be completely relaxed about the idea of retiring today's uh, predators altogether, but this is probably sociologically unrealistic. But what we can do is uh, genetically tweak the lion, for example, so that either the lion eats in vitro meat or it ceases to be an obligate carnivore at all. Uh, Now, some people would uh, protest there that a lion that isn't terrorizing, uh, asphyxiating zebras isn't truly a lion. Whether one would say that humans who uh, become uh, uh, vegans and pacifists aren't truly human, I don't know. But all I can do is essentially say, well, does this really matter? In terms of costs, today's prices, it would cost trillions, but nonetheless, price will come down. Every cubic meter of the planet will shortly become computationally accessible to micromanagement and control. Something like CRISPR-based synthetic gene drives, spread benign versions of low-pain SCN9A, could be done cheaply and effectively. Essentially, once again, it is a technical problem with a a technical solution. One would start off with biospheres, pilot studies, and so forth. So it's not a matter of charging in gung-ho to intervene. But, uh, yeah, tomorrow's wildlife parks could resemble the Garden of Eden, in which the the lion and the wolf uh, do lie down with uh, the lamb. The question is, do we want to uh, conserve murder, misery and mayhem, or whether we want a happy world in which all sentient beings can flourish physically unmolested?
0: Hmm, I think that's very beautifully put. I do want to interject here on something that you were saying. Uh, But I think the main point here is that nature is a place where there is a great deal of suffering and perhaps a great deal of this suffering is entirely unnecessary. And so we do have even an ethical obligation to the extent to which it is in our power to alleviate as much of this unnecessary suffering as we can. I think many of the doubts that people might have about this abolitionist project of ending suffering in the natural world at least for the people that I've talked to about this, is that it's not so much that it's not a goal that they could get on board with ethically, but whether or not it's such an extraordinary feat of technology and engineering that it could actually be achieved without risking some unexpected and perhaps disastrous consequences, like the collapse of the biosphere or something. But on the other hand, if the knowledge and wisdom is truly there to do it, then I don't see a good argument against it going back to what you were saying before about factory farming, I've heard you say that many of the animals which humans consume in large numbers are roughly equivalent in their capacity for sentience as prelinguistic toddlers, human uh, prelinguistic toddlers. And so in some sense, in some respects, the ethical stakes in how we treat them is roughly equivalent. That seems like a very strong stance to take. Would you be willing to restate that here?
1: Yes, I mean, a uh, sort of convergence of evidence that suggests that a pig, for example, is as sentient and demonstrably as uh, sapient as a prelinguistic toddler, and yet we treat pigs in ways that, if the victims were humans, would get the perpetrators locked up for life. And, yeah, intuitively, one recoils at this. You know, one tells oneself it can't really be uh, that bad that one's meat-eating circle acquaintance aren't akin to uh, child abusers and serial killers. Uh, Some people will say such things as, Ah, but uh, a pig isn't going to uh, grow up to be an adult human. Um, but I wouldn't say, for example, that a pre-linguistic toddler uh, with a progressive disease that means she won't live to see her, her third birthday is somehow less valuable or deserves to be abused in consequence, or that it'd be a shame to let protein go to waste, pack her off to the factory farm or something. That would be us Repugnant in terms of actually reducing the burden of suffering in the world, I think the first thing we need to do is to stop paying for it or causing it ourselves, and that means stopping eating meat and ideally uh, stopping uh, animal products too.
0: Yeah, and along these lines, I remember Andre saying on the last podcast that in the future, if we eventually come to see ourselves more as these complex bundles of qualia of uh, consciousness we may well look back at how we treated animals today as kind of a form of cannibalism because our fundamental identity of consciousness is only going to become more obvious as things change and so you know how we're treating other species now may well become a significant part of how we define this era in history (laughs) I think it's implicit in the way that you talk about consciousness, that there is this much larger state space of possible conscious experiences which exists to be discovered in a way and explored, even though uh, for the time being most of this state space is entirely inconceivable to our minds as they exist now. So, David, why uh, explore the infinite state space of consciousness? What kinds of things do you think might be waiting to be discovered? And how do we determine what matters? Um, Yeah, I think
1: what is morally urgent uh, is states uh, on the pleasure-pain axis, that the pleasure-pain axis, for reasons we don't understand, discloses the world's inbuilt metric of value and disvalue. And so uh, overriding responsibility is to get rid of the bad stuff below hedonic zero Um, but once we have done so then yes all the evidence is that there is an immense range of alien state spaces of consciousness that are currently completely inaccessible to us and that's because we have actually abolished the biology of suffering and made experience below hedonic zero physically impossible. It will be possible to explore these state spaces of experience in safety. What Mm. we will discover at the risk of sounding lame, I simply don't know. I mean, that's the point. They are so weird. I don't think taking major psychedelics is the instant royal route to profundity and enlightenment. Uh, One of the reasons uh, I think that these alien states spaces are so fascinating is that they haven't been recruited by natural selection for any Information signaling purpose, and so that when one uh, takes a particular agent and enters an alien state space, essentially one hasn't got the conceptual resources to explore it. Language is preeminently a social public institution, and uh, this is a, a in some ways a lame analogy, I'm going to give it. Over. I sometimes use the example of imagine a tribe of congenitally blind super rationalists, one of whose members takes a drug that induces what we would call visual experiences, incredibly intense and chaotic. Of course he or she is right to think that this is profoundly significant how does this drug taker convince the the elders, the rationalists of the tribe that he or she has discovered something profoundly important and significant? He or she hasn't got the uh, sensory apparatus transducers to confer enhanced sensitivity to, 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 to stimuli. If he or she starts talking about the ineffable or the ex, inexpressible, that sounds rather lame. The rationalists of the tribe uh, are going to be rather uh, unimpressed by uh, this talk of drugs that are you know, profoundly significant. But uh, I think there is evidence that there are billions, trillions, possibly more of state spaces of consciousness as different as sights and sounds we will be able to use uh, CRISPR genome editing to create new state spaces of consciousness. Uh, essentially, I think the enterprise of knowledge has has scarcely begun. That's normally one thinks of oneself as deferring to the expertise of of, of chemists and physicists as, those, as the people who really uh, understand the nature of matter and energy. But uh, on the contrary, I think though quantum field theory formally and the standard model formally describes uh, the world, that essentially we do not understand the intrinsic nature of matter and energy, that most of the solutions to the fundamental equations are completely inaccessible to us, and we will only be able to responsibly explore psychedelia in depth once we have got rid of the, uh, the biology of suffering.
0: So as we embark down this path of exploring this larger universe of possible mental states, which as you describe is really what the path of knowledge actually is in a way, do you think that it is logical in a way that we will come to identify as consciousness? Do you think that consciousness itself is a good basis for our identity?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean this depends on a solution to the heart problem in, in one sense. It's clearly highly speculative whether consciousness is fundamental, though I press for, argue, develop a conjecture of non-materialist physicalism, it could be false. It it may be simply the case that for reasons we simply do not understand that uh, consciousness is emergent, but running with the conjecture of non-materialist physicalism, yeah, consciousness is fundamental, but uh, it only becomes interesting when it is phenomenally bound i think one of the reasons why many people understandably are so dismissive of panpsychism or non-materialist physicalism is that they think one is claiming that uh, a rock or a stone or a carrot is conscious that's not the claim that would that would be animism the claim uh, is that the yeah the world's fundamental Fields of uh, fields of insentience rather than insentience. Uh, any explanation too uh, has to explore the nature of, of phenomenal binding. And whereas most, though not all, people aware of the hard problem of consciousness, quite frequently people ask to be reminded what the binding problem is, or in some cases don't see the binding problem as as, as significant at all.
0: I think, you know, what I'm getting at when I ask if consciousness is a good basis for our identity, it's not necessarily whether or not consciousness exists as a distinct, irreducible feature on the metaphysical landscape, but whether or not that is also not the best practical way of viewing ourselves as sort of moving through time. And, uh, you know, if we're making these changes to our minds... It doesn't seem to be a good idea to identify with the precise structure of our minds at any given time. But if we see ourselves as the light of consciousness, which is moving through all of these states, that to me seems to be the most pragmatic view of what we are. And so if we eventually go beyond what it means to be human, whatever that is, we could leave behind perhaps everything other than the fact that we are a mind and not that we are a mind exactly but that we are actually the changing space of consciousness. Yes all
1: of this only matters because of the pleasure pain axis uh, and that whatever exotic states of experience one can imagine or investigate in the absence of hedonic coloration uh, good or bad they don't intrinsically matter that the engine of value is the pleasure-pain axis. And it's easy to fetishize what isn't intrinsically valuable, uh, that evolution has induced us to fetishize all kinds of stimuli that are fitness-enhancing but don't intrinsically matter, and likewise with uh, alien state spaces of consciousness. In the absence of hedonic Uh,
0: innovation i don't think they that they would matter it does seem implicit in what you're saying and perhaps this is obvious but that there are moral truths to be discovered in a way uh, such as unnecessary suffering is bad so does what you're saying imply that there is a discoverable universal ethics that perhaps intelligent societies of minds will eventually tend toward and converge on Yes, uh, science
1: uh, encourages us to take the God's eye view. One is not special or privileged that one here or now isn't more, inherently more significant uh, than any other here and now, The view from nowhere. Um, and yes, I, I, I mean, the, the opposite is the orthogonality thesis, but I think some form of convergence is plausible that it's for reasons we don't understand, built into the very nature of agony and despair is this this normative uh, aspect, the badness, Now, of course, my suffering is inaccessible to you. And, uh, you you know, you might say, well, yeah, there is nothing irrational or or illogical about your being relaxed about my suffering. But I think that this this is an epistemological limitation and that if one could actually experience the suffering of others... One would define why uh, it matters, why it is important, why it is bad, and that when we can advance perhaps to a civilization of mind melding, reversible thalamic bridges akin to the conjoined twins, the the the, uh, the Hogan sisters who can actually experience to some degree each other's minds, I think it's going to lead to both a moral revolution, ethical revolution, and a revolution of decision-theoretic rationality. That one wouldn't say someone who steals from their own pension is some kind of super-rational, super-sociopath. It would seem to be irrational for them to do so. And likewise, I think post-human superintelligence—well, post-human superintelligence won't have a false theory of personal identity of enduring metaphysical egos that instead will have this god's eye perspective this capacity to access all other relevant first person experiences and perspectives and uh, act accordingly and just as you would withdraw your hand from the fire it is built into the nature of this agonizing experience that it's bad, and so you withdraw your hand from the fire, I would uh, anticipate uh, post-human superintelligence doing something similar for, for biological life, assuming that is that we haven't uh, got rid of suffering on our own initiative.
0: Right. And as well, I think that in your own perspective, your experience Suffering is intrinsically bad and because of that it's very immediately important to you. And yet to me, I'm not experiencing your pain exactly. And what connects us is this identity of consciousness and that in some sense what is happening to you is happening to me. And what actually separates the ethical significance of your pain from my experience is my ignorance of it. And so, you know, if we could have this super perspective that you mentioned of all possible states of experience, we would intrinsically and logically have a compassionate concern to all uh, conscious perspectives. Let's go back to panpsychism for a moment. David, if consciousness is fundamental in some way to reality, and you and I have both expressed some sympathy toward that view, How do you think that that would interact with our views about ethics more broadly and how we see ourselves in the universe and what we're doing here? Do you think that they would be significantly affected by a fundamental view of consciousness? Um, Perhaps not as much as one might
1: imagine, because Mm. even if consciousness is fundamental, uh, unless you actually have a subject to experience a unitary subject of experience you have what is effectively just a sort of an aggregate of Jamesian mind dust, what Phil Goff called a a micro experiential zombie, that what makes anything ethically significant is being a subject of experience with a pleasure pain axis. And so learning uh, that it does transpire this is the case, that the nature of the physical is experiential it's not as though it's like anything to be a carrot or a rock so i i i don't think in that sense it it would change necessarily our ethical perspective i mean i don't think there's anything wrong with kicking rocks
0: yeah i suppose what i'm getting at with panpsychism and sort of how we see ourselves i'm not sure exactly what the ethical calculus of it would be exactly but just in terms of our story and how we see ourselves in the universe and what we're doing and what we are, the idea that consciousness is in some sense intrinsic to the nature of reality, that's a very different kind of story to the view of life as a chemical scum, as uh, Stephen Hawkins put it. And uh, you know, consciousness is an entirely non-significant illusion. But if some species of panpsychism or idealism is correct, then the actual domain of value and significance itself is actually afforded by some very deep ontological truth about reality. And, you know, if our minds are not a trivial illusion, but they're continuous with this sort of larger cosmological enfoldment, it's all the same scientific data, but it's a very resituated narrative from materialism
1: yeah i mean if if this is this perspective is correct uh, essentially uh, physicists orthodox physicists and chemists don't understand the nature of matter and energy Which sounds rather counterintuitive, but I think this is the case that someone who says, you know, that we're just chemical scum or uh, a bunch of chemicals. Well, one cuts both ways. Uh, A bunch of chemicals are just consciousness.
0: Yeah, I do think that the universe is a very different kind of place due to its having this capacity to support conscious minds. It's it's an extraordinary fact that the universe can support this experience of subjective meaning. And, you know, if you really recognize the significance of that, there's a depth to reality which is just way beyond what any sort of outer materialist view can describe.
1: Yes, we haven't uh, touched on radical and limitivism, but in one sense, but only one sense, uh, limitivists are extremely clear-headed. There is simply no place for subjectivity if the ontology of basic physical science is correct. So they bite the bullet and say, well, yes, in some sense, consciousness must be an illusion but one one struggles to make any kind of plausible case here even as even as a devil devil's advocate because in the realm of of appearance the distinction between a reality and what seems to be collapses i mean this is it consciousness mm-hmm. is
0: appearance so we're approaching the end of our time today the last topic that i want to get your views about is death <laughs> So, David, do you think that the end of suffering entails or connects to the end of death? How do you look at death? Is death something to be transcended eventually, or is it something that's somehow necessary to life?
1: Uh, I think we should phase out the biology of ageing and death And crudely, transhumanism can be said to embrace the the three supers, super happiness, which I think is ultimately the most important, Uh, super intelligence, which we've been discussing, full spectrum super intelligence involving not just autistic AI, but also the capacity to explore billions of different state spaces of consciousness. But the third super, yes, super longevity, radical life extension, uh, effectively eternal youth. I think we should be aiming for with opt out cryonics as an option for anyone who probably quite realistically uh, thinks that they're unlikely to live long enough to see the end of, of aging otherwise. Now, this might seem rather uh, surprising, particularly, as you know, I'm a a sceptic about the notion of uh, enduring metaphysical egos, but there's no denying that ageing is a source of tremendous suffering, that death, uh, bereavement, uh, is a cause of tremendous suffering, and that, yeah, for evolutionary reasons... Biological robots like us sedes, we go old and die, but just as silicon, robots can be repaired and upgraded indefinitely. There doesn't seem to be any immutable law of nature uh, that says that uh, organic robots must go old and perish. Uh, this is going to be a long term project which is why as i say i think it's uh, it's vital uh, to combine the approach of uh, sens uh, aubrey de gray with something on the lines of cryonics so it's 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 an integrated strategy to defeat aging some people on this may be I think very largely is a case of rationalising ah, that they wouldn't want to live indefinitely, that it would be a recipe uh, for boredom, but in practice, defeating the biology of boredom, it would be relatively trivial compared to defeating the biology of ageing. That posthuman life is likely to be animated, not simply by gradients of bliss, but gradients of uh, enthrallment and fascination.
0: Yeah, and this idea that we are kind of a stepping stone to something which is almost inconceivable to us now, I think is a useful analogy. And of course, if we are in fact successful in continuing to survive on this planet and potentially moving out into the larger universe, then there's no real issues about space to be concerned with or having a finite amount of resources. And so living indefinitely, it, it does seem possible. And there do seem to be already some species that don't actually age. Uh, lobsters, I think, don't actually age. They just get damaged over time. You know, I might not be entirely correct about that. But, but in principle, it should be possible to change the relevant elements of our biology such that we no longer age. But, you know, I think the question at that point would be, do we want to live forever or indefinitely? And I think if we do have a greater control over our minds at that stage as well, then we would see any potential boredom or desire to end consciousness as a problem to be solved at the level of the mind rather than actually bringing our lives to an end. Sorry, I've I've been rambling. No, I mean
1: that's that's a a very very good way to put it. Uh, Essentially, the the problem of happiness and the problem of meaning are often regarded as, as 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 distinct. But in practice, by creating super happiness, we will create super meaning too, that descendants or elderly cells will uh, probably find life uh, suffused with an incredibly deep sense of meaning, significance, purpose, possibly to an extent that is physiologically impossible today. Now, of course, one could say, ah, but is life that seems to be sublimely Wonderful, significant, and meaningful, really, in some transcendent sense, meaningful, but uh, yeah, i'm not even sure that this this question is 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 intelligible
0: I realize that there's a question that I wanted to ask you, which i've skipped over, and if we could just go back i 'll stitch it in later, but I wanted to ask you at some point um you've mentioned that our ethical obligations for the world and ultimately for ourselves and other animals, eventually extend out very broadly to the point at which we are in some sense responsible for looking after the entire Hubble volume or the entire reachable universe. Can you say a little bit about how you get to that view and sort of the underlying ethics which underpin it? Yeah.
1: Um Although personally, I'm a negative utilitarian or suffering-focused ethics, Buddhist, if you like, one needn't be a negative utilitarian or a Buddhist to think that, yeah, we have uh, an obligation to minimize, mitigate, prevent, abolish suffering wherever we find it. And that once we have discharged our ethical obligations on earth, what about the rest of our uh, the universe, or, or more strictly, what about uh, the rest of, well, starting off with a the galaxy, then onto our local supercluster. May well be that the accelerating expansion of the universe means that we can't get anywhere, f- anywhere further than that. But yeah, we have to, before retreating into designer paradises, be absolutely sure that we have discharged all our ethical responsibilities. And if primordial suffering life exists within our Hubble volume, within our cosmological horizon, then I think we have uh, a duty to reach out and rescue it too.
0: Yeah, and by extension, if it is indeed the case that life is not incredibly rare and that we're not actually the only relatively intelligent life to exist in the universe, then this logic uh, would of course bring us into the ethical purview of these beings and so aliens ets if they're out there and they're sufficiently advanced in their thinking about consciousness and the hedonic landscape uh, perhaps they would be principally motivated to help us as well
1: uh yes i would imagine so this is kind of convergent uh, uh e- evolution that although That it may well be uh, life does exist elsewhere in reality, and I suspect it will have uh, a pleasure-pain axis too. And even super intelligent, advanced life, uh, though it may be inconceivable in some sense, in another, I think it will occupy one part of the pleasure-pain axis I mean the, the wonderful sublime part but in that sense I see a degree of of universality and uh, the prospect of, of convergence that there will be no species with uh, an inverted
0: pleasure-pain axis for example. I think that the idea that ethics could converge in some way and that ethics is something that essentially we can discover I think that that is going to sound quite counterintuitive to people that have got the idea that all ethics is, is sort of the evolutionary logic of passing genetic material from one generation to the next. But I think if we take a step back and if we say that there are ethical truths and maybe one ethical truth we can say is that suffering, unnecessary suffering at least is bad. And maybe there is a converse access in which we can say that exploring rarefied states of consciousness is good then there is in some sense the possibility of a universal ethics to emerge out of that, which is actually, I think, quite a profound thing to realize because it means that there is this possibility for progress and even beyond what we can perhaps even conceive of now.
1: Yes, uh, it's, it's, that's well put. I mean, one always uh, uh, sounds rather naive if one talks uh, about moral progress, uh, but uh, if this perspective is correct, then yeah, essentially that by uh, abolishing uh, uh, slavery, uh, and that by getting rid of, I hope, shutting down factory farms, slaughterhouses, uh, by uh, phasing out uh, racism, sexism, homophobia, all the, all the kind of the ills of Darwinian life that this really will, uh, be progress and it's moral pro- progress that is derivative uh, 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 from the the pleasure pain axis uh, it's not as though all sorts of activities are intrinsically bad, they are bad in so
0: far as they impact pleasure and pain David, we are almost out of time for our conversation which I've really enjoyed uh, but there's definitely still time to let people know where they can find out more about your ideas and go deeper into the things that you've been talking about so yeah where should people go to learn more about you and your work um well
1: if your audience are interested headweb.com h-e-d-w-e-b.com it's the original motherload site where back in 1995 when the web was young i wrote and uploaded a, a manifesto the hedonistic imperative and though the design of HIDWEB is extremely dated, straight-of-the-art web design 1997 or so, nonetheless, yeah, I've put most of my core material... There, I spent quite a bit of time on social media. I've cut and pasted all my core answers. Uh, yeah, it's, it, essentially, I've got a, a bunch of websites. But if you started at headweb.com, um, yeah, you can read more or,
0: or, or drop me a, an email. I find headweb.com to be a simple site, it's very easy to navigate, but it's uh, definitely a piece of history. <laughs> I'll, I'll definitely make sure that there's a link to that in the description. And again, David, thank you so much for making time for me and having this conversation. And I do hope that we can do this again sometime.
1: I very much hope so, Adrian, and uh, yes, you are warmly welcome to visit uh, uh,
0: sunny Brighton. Oh, thank you. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with David Pierce. Remember, the best way to support the podcast is through Patreon through the link in the description. Next time we'll be examining the comparisons between the universe and an organism and exploring the various different ways our worldview might be different if we considered the universe to be in some sense a living process. But that's about it for today's episode. You've been listening to Waking Cosmos, exploring the nature of consciousness, reality and life's place in the universe. I'm Adrian Nelson, have a beautiful day.